Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos in New York. Coming up on today's episode. That's the balance that I try to strike in my work. I'm trying to make something that is as entertaining as Batman, that's representing extremely important issues and like naturalizing them. Today's guest is the multi-award-winning podcaster Caitlin Prest, who is formerly host of The Heart and now is the founder of the podcasting company Mermaid Palace. She's, I think, one of the most interesting and innovative people making audio today. And after that, we're doing something a bit different for Fashion Month. Fashion Month just means when New York, London, Milan and Paris have their fashion weeks, one after the other. So in honour of this, we decided to get Emily Seagull onto the podcast. She's a trend forecaster. She coined the term normcore. So she stopped by to give us her top lines on Fashion Month and to question whether trends even exist anymore. Just a heads up, our conversation with Caitlin not only covers issues around sex and consent, but also contains some swearing. So it may not be suitable for everyone. So Lila, it's been a few weeks. Other than co-launching season two of the podcast, uh, (laughs) what have you been up to? Um, Not much. I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) I have been... (laughs) Up to a few things. One, I've been looking through our emails after episode one because it's just like food for the soul to read our (laughs) notes from listeners. And we got tons of love for Danny Lee, the film reviewer who came on and uh, is just excellent and so much fun to listen to. So we're going to have him on again by popular demand. Also, we got an email from Charlotte Bilney in Hong Kong. She's a fan of the show. She knows we love recommendations. And she gave us one, Bridge of Clay by Marcus Zusak. Do you know it? Uh, No, I don't know. It's the follow-up to his 2005 bestseller, The Book Thief, which you all may know. It was made into a film starring Jeffrey Rush. Uh, And this book is about five brothers living in Sydney who are coming to terms with their father's death. Apparently, he spent two decades writing it. Wow. Yeah, now I want to read it. So thank you, Charlotte. And my own recommendation is, (laughs) drumroll, the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix (laughs) called Miss Americana. (laughs) As most celebrity Uh. documentaries are, it is a redemption story, and it totally succeeds in making everybody like Taylor Swift again. She's not involved in the making of this documentary, is she, by any chance? No, she didn't. I I mean, it's not, you know, Beyonce's Life is But a Dream. She was like the executive producer and the director and all those things. No, (laughs) it was not produced or directed by Taylor Swift. It was actually directed by Lana Wilson, who's an Emmy Award winning documentarian Uh. um, for Netflix, and it was an all-female film crew. But it did make her look good, you know, as these (laughs) things do. It's about fame, mostly. And I'm sort of obsessed with how fame affects a famous person's actual life and how it changes them and what it actually feels like and what it means to be sort of developmentally arrested at the age you got famous, which Mm. Taylor Swift talks about. There's a scene of her walking out onto a stage with 30,000 people and she's wearing this glittery outfit and she is this sort of like product, right? Um, and this brand and uh, everybody's crying, (laughs) watching her and screaming. (laughs) And then there's the scene afterwards of her sitting in a recording studio kind of alone with one other, you know, producer and she's eating a burrito (laughs) and she's like stuffing a tortilla chip into it. And she's like, you ever did this before? Like you ever (laughs) adds crunch. (laughs) And I just felt like, oh, it just shows the sort of like up and down of how human and inhuman 
fame can be. Mm. She also talks about struggling with an eating disorder, which she had never talked about before, getting into politics after many years of staying silent, the Kanye West moment, the ways that she was vilified, etc. So that's all interesting. I would say that as a fan of celebrity documentaries, though, I was hoping for something like dark and weird to happen. Um, but I don't really think Taylor Swift is that dark and weird. <laughs> no, I think perhaps not. Yeah, I think that's the... That's the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, that's the takeaway. But you're, but you're a fan of the celebrity documentary generally, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, there's like a canon. <laughs> Other <laughs> gems include Lady Gaga's documentary, Five Foot Two, which definitely had some darkness and weirdness, but she's an eccentric person. Uh, <laughs> there's the Nas documentary, Time is Illmatic. There's Madonna's Truth or Dare from 1991, which was iconic. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's Asif Kapadia's documentary, Amy, about Amy Winehouse, which yeah. was heartbreaking. Yeah, I loved that one. I think I think he's really cool. I mean, so he's done Senna and also Diego Maradona was his most recent one. Like, unlike lots of the documentaries I think you see on Netflix, probably particularly in this genre, although I'm not an expert, um, <laughs> is you get a lot of talking heads. You get, like, all the people around the famous person yeah. telling you about them. He doesn't do any talking heads at all. He only has footage. So that Amy um, one is particularly amazing because it's just this amazing behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, a camcorder from whenever it was, the 90s, that's her in her bedroom. Yeah. It's quite an amazing patchwork of just the footage from her life. It really is. Um I think Danny Lee actually did an interview with him about yes. his documentaries. We can link to it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. I am not embarrassed to say I have also watched the One Direction documentary, the Ed Sheeran documentary. Um, I know my <laughs> friends are embarrassed for me to tell you. Anyway, Taylor Swift, another gem. I recommend it. Grizz, so, tell me what you've been up to. But wait, wait, wait. I just have one oh. more question, which yeah. is, is it like you've only made it as a celebrity if you have a documentary made about you for Netflix? I think so, because it means that you have to explain yourself. <laughs> it means that everybody has created a preconceived notion of you because you've l reached that level of fame. Mm. And now you need to humanize yourself and show you, show everybody that, like, you're not a horrible person. Mm. It's, it's, it's that's kind of interesting. Dark. Yeah, very. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but good dog. <laughs> but good for me. Yeah. <laughs> good for viewers like us. Um, so, Grizz, what about you? What have you been watching, reading consuming i've i've been on kind of um i've been on a bit of a theater binge recently actually cool yeah i've been to see a lot of things the best of which was called the death of england at the national theater mm. um it's a one-man play starring an actor called rafe spall i don't know have you heard of him no i feel like he's probably better known here than he is in america um his dad is timothy spall who played churchill in the king's speech oh yeah turner the painter in mr turner so The Death of England is interesting. It's a play about basically the white British working class written by Roy Williams and Clint Dyer, two black British playwrights for mm. a white actor. That's so interesting. Yeah, it it is. It made it, it gave it a kind of frisson, I think. It's basically a lot about class, but also about race, about masculinity. But this guy, this single man on stage is basically grieving the death of his dad it's a lot about Brexit and hmm. his dad's views on Brexit versus his own. And he's trying to work out what they are. Um, so it's really ambitious and very like kind of state of the nation-y. Yeah. But also really funny. And it really felt like stand-up. Like there were points where he was like passing biscuits around the audience and like getting people <laughs> to hold things um, and sort of bantering and slightly off the cuff. Like I wonder if he does it exactly the same every night. I'm curious about 
the one man play. I mean, what makes yeah. it or one woman play or one woman play? I think it really rests on the performer. I mean, that's obvious, mm. but you can have a weak member of the cast if you have a huge cast and like whatever, no one right. really notices. But he was amazing. Some of the reviews I've read have said, you know, the play's really ambitious and really great. It's not totally perfect, but his performance is completely mesmerizing mm. and like high energy. I mean, he was talking at like double speed some wow. of the time so that like you could hardly keep up with just even understanding what he was saying, let alone like, I mean, I just wouldn't be able to talk that fast. It was like really physically impressive. Wow. Um, but then he also has this different register where he's like really grieving and it's basically about a man who's just like having to deal with all of these feelings and taking lots of coke and drinking too much and you're basically just watching someone's breakdown over the course of maybe an hour and a half yeah. on stage maybe a bit longer but I mean it's quite a short punchy play and he and there's no interval he's just there on stage walking around and you're so close to him. Do you have a sense of what the writers were trying to portray in in writing this play about a, mm. a white man? A working class white man? I mean, it was a lot about racism. I got a program and there was an interesting extract from a book from the writer Akala. Um, and this is a book that's been published recently and it's basically, he was basically saying um, working class racism versus middle class racism, this is in Britain. He was saying that white working class racism might be more overt and like use language that is very overtly offensive Mm -hmm. But actually, the middle class racism of kind of politeness, but deep prejudice is just as bad, but we don't kind of see it as being as bad or like the kind of chattering classes don't. Yeah. Um, and that was really interesting and made me made me think. I mean, it's the same in the US. Yeah. You can make a very easy villain out of a white working class man with a red face shouting and ranting mm -hmm. and saying unpleasant things. It's very easy just to close the door on that and be like, oh, problem go away but to actually engage with it is is probably more important yeah um, or at least on some level I mean I'm not saying it's incumbent on people of, of color to engage with white working class racism but I think as people in the theater it gives it that distance where it was throwing up lots of very uncomfortable things and maybe it's the role of of white middle class or upper middle class viewers who are probably in the audience mm. of this play to do something about all of it <laughs> Yeah, and those people do make up a large proportion, I would imagine, of the National Theatre. Yeah, it's basically like, it's like, it wasn't totally perfect play, but it really got me thinking and I felt like there was a really amazing atmosphere in the room. Great. So yeah. you said you were on a theatre binge, Grizz. Are you, what else are you seeing? Well, tomorrow night I'm going to go to Tom Stoppard's new play, Leopoldstadt, which I may have mispronounced. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of like the big deal that's happening in... London theatre at the moment. Why does everyone want to get a ticket to it? Well, I mean, without sounding like morbid, Tom Stoppard <laughs> is 82. It's been said that this might be his last play. Um, you know, he's kind of quite widely considered to be one of the greatest living British playwrights, mm. if not the greatest. And so if this is his last statement, this is someone who's written lots and lots of plays, which are, you know, they're the kind of plays that I studied at school. Like, it's mm. amazing that he's still writing them now. Like what? Like Arcadia is a famous one, or Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm. And this one does sound really interesting. It's basically, I think it sounds like it's it's 20th century Jewish history, but told through the story of one family. And I can't wait to see it. Cool. Tell me how it is. I'll tweet about it. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. <laughs>
So, Caitlin Prest, um, Lila, tell me, why did you want to have her on the show? It's a bit of a story, Grizz, if you're ready for it. I am. <laughs> um, when I lived in London, I was part of a podcast club, uh, which is basically like a book club, but for podcasts. So we'd get together once a month and we'd listen to podcasts and we'd drink wine and eat cheese and bread and someone would make a soup. <laughs> anyway, at one point, we were assigned an episode of Caitlin Press' podcast, The Heart. Welcome to The Heart. I just remember walking over Southwark Bridge to work at the FT yes. when listening to it and just thinking like, oh, my God, what is this? I have never heard anything like this before. This is so good. In this mini season, I'm going to take you on a trip. The trip is not psychedelic. Nor does it involve driving anywhere. And it was June of 2017. So it was before the Harvey Weinstein story broke that October. And it was a four-part series within the heart. And it was called No. And it was about consent. Like um, N-O. N-O, yeah. And hmm. it was just kind of, it was an exploration of the word no through the lens of consent. Yeah. Um, and the subject matter was really direct. I mean, it was about... Caitlin's personal struggle to communicate consent through her own sexual history. Um, and it dealt with really thorny and really hard to answer questions. Um, and in a really like sound rich, shocking way. The series hinged on two key pieces of tape. One was an interview with her friend Jay, who had pushed her into doing sexual stuff together. Uh, she found that most women had had a similar experience of having sex that they didn't want. And so in order to explore it, she called him to talk about it, sort of to ask what was his point of view on the experience and how did he feel about it and explain how she felt about it and how she had been carrying it since. Mm. Um, and he was extremely defensive. It's oh, so rehashing every. It's just so much work. Can't we just... I I know. Move, what you mean. I know. Can we just move on? Like, really? Is it really that big a deal? Like, honestly? I mean, the thing is, it's not that because it can't be in your daily life. Like, can this really follow you around? I mean, it, there's like the honest answer to that question, and then there's the answer to that question, which is like me really wanting to not make you feel bad. Do you know what I mean? To my thinking, it's just like in all of our friendship, knowing what you know about me. Don't I get a pass for one infraction of this line? I just... The like, second was with a friend called Raul, and this is a piece of tape she had found. So she had interviewed him for a project that was different, and then she had left the recorder running. And then he started flirting with her, and it led to them having sex. And she resisted, but then agreed. And that whole back and forth was on tape. I listen to the way that I actually sound in a night like this, where my boundaries are crossed. And you can't touch me in sexy places. When my best friend Laura listened to this, she said it definitely sounded like I wanted to fuck this guy. And if you take away the words and just listen to the sounds... This is probably exactly the way that I sounded when I was with Jay saying no in this sweet, seductive tone. I'm trying so hard to be nice and not hurt anybody's feelings that my no basically sounds like fuck me. But on the other hand, 
I wonder how many people sound just like this when they're getting hot and heavy with someone and they're trying to draw a line, express what they want in a way that doesn't break the flirtatious vibe, that doesn't negate the possibility of doing other things. I wonder how many people sound just like this when they're scared. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so that he said, she said that we usually get after a sexual experience, like that was all there to hear, which is not something you normally hear. No, no, that's so rare. Yeah. So millions of people listen to this series. I was not the only one walking across the bridge that day. Um, (laughs) One of the world's biggest podcasts, Radiolab, which you probably know, Mm. they featured it and then carried on the conversation about a year later. It won tons of awards. Now it's being optioned um, as a TV show. Wow. And Caitlin has left the heart to two new co-hosts. And she started an audio company of her own off of the success of all of this called Mermaid Palace. So what do you think is like really unique about Caitlin's work. How do you think she's pushing things forward in terms of podcasting? What I think is interesting about Caitlin is that all of her projects take on these big, thorny, complicated issues Mm. and they treat them with basically three things. One, highly complicated sound, just like very interesting sound. And she talks in our conversation about how she creates those worlds. Um, Two is the blending of genres. She started off doing nonfiction audio documentary work, and now her most recent projects have been all fiction, really. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah, and fiction as like a easier way to explore real things than nonfiction because you're not sort of constrained by making sure that it's accurate and true to yeah, the person who you're yeah. exposing. Um, and then the third is, I mean, I don't know if she would say this, but I think kind of the art of making you very uncomfortable <laughs> in a really interesting way. Like, it's very sexual and it's, she's very sex positive. And um, there's a little bit of like sort of an ASMR quality to it. She's very quiet and she's very loud and she you can kind of hear rubbing and um, whatever, many things. <laughs> I'm going to stop because I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. Um, you also hear actual sex, but it doesn't feel pornographic. It feels like life. Like she really makes you almost uncomfortable in how gritty and and real parts of your life that you never hear are yeah. when they're in your ears. And that sounds to me like something that I haven't heard being done on a kind of podcast of this scale that's being listened to by this many people. Exactly. That feels quite new to me. Yeah. And she's coming out with something new, right? Yeah. Her company's first new show is coming out on February 25th. It's called Asking For It, which is a great name. It's for CBC Podcast, which is like the Canadian BBC. I'm lucky to be one of the few people on the planet to have heard it early. uh, And I (laughs) loved it. Apart from this new show, which sounds amazing, why did you want to speak with her now? I really wanted to speak with her now because she was this like anti-establishment outsider with this anarchist queer collective in the Hmm. early days of podcasting. And now suddenly she's an insider. I mean, she's at the top of the food chain. She's won all these awards. She's a main player. Like in an age when podcasting is exploding as a genre, she's at the top. And she's still publishing these crazy fiction soundscapes that explore sex and love and romance and gender and abuse. And so that tension really interested me. Let's listen to the interview. Cool. Caitlin Prest, welcome to Culture Call. Hi. I think that you are doing some of the most interesting work in audio. And I'm wondering how you would describe your guiding obsession. I mean, I guess as a documentarian, to tell the truth. 
I was always fascinated by the problem of representing truth. And when I first started to learn about documentary, I found it so interesting and immediately a question of power. Right. I started volunteering at the community radio station in Montreal. And I was working on this show about like indigenous culture and like cutting this interview with this filmmaker. And it just immediately felt weird. Like I shouldn't be cutting this woman's words. I shouldn't be working on this show. That felt like too much power <laughs> I, to you? It just felt like a weird power dynamic. I'm a white person. I'm carving how this woman is represented in a mass medium based off of what I think is interesting and what I think, you know, is relevant. Immediately, I was like, the only way that I can reconcile that power dynamic is support people and create space for people to make work about their communities, and I'm going to make work about mine. Right. And so there just so happened around that time, there was a show called Audio Smut that was like a queer, feminist, um, sex-positive hour. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that's my zone, <laughs> you know? So the truth thing, that's a big thing. And then the second thing is craft, you right. know? Like, I'm obsessed with the craft. I'm obsessed with sound. I'm obsessed with the question of how to tell the truth with sound. Mm -hmm. Like, how to reproduce the feeling of being alive using this tool. So you're a sound artist and a documentarian. Your work really sounds like nothing I've heard before. And I'm curious how you create that sound, like whether you have a particular philosophy to sound design. You know, what are the rules and how are you breaking them? Mm, I love that. I mean, it's so interesting to think about the way that starting out on a show that was about sexuality really shaped my entire sound. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because at the time, as a teenager, like when I was like, you know, tuning into sex TV. I was so excited. And then it was just like interviews, you know, and I was like, okay, you're doing an interview about a butt plug, but like, this is not really telling me anything about sex. And I wanted, I remember I wanted the show to feel like sex. You know, I was like, if we're going to try to tell the truth of sexuality, then it has to be erotic. Right. And so when we set out to make it erotic with sound, like that was just the beginning of so much. And it was the beginning of understanding sound because like at first I was like, oh my God, okay, how do we make it erotic? We record actual sex right you record actual sex and you're like oh like it sounds disgusting <laughs> right like that does not sound erotic you know and yeah. that like that's kind of one of my basic principles of sound design and it's like if you learn about sound design like one of the first things you'll learn is that just because you record the actual sound of something doesn't mean that it captures the truth of what's happening even a zipper when you unzip a zipper you know, the sound that we all associate with the unzipping of a zipper is not the sound of an actual zipper, you know, and right. it's something about like trying to capture the motion and the texture of something that's happening visually or physically or like movement. Right. Even the sound of someone slipping, the sound of a punch, the sound of a car crash. None of those things are the way that they actually sound, but it's like setting out to use sound to evoke the feeling of the event. And that's so exciting. So how do you record sex that feels true if you can't just record sex? Um, I think I just discovered something by accident mm. when it comes to recording intimacy. Yeah. You know, um, a collaborator of mine, my former business partner, Mitra Kaboli, she was like, I'm going to record the sound of me giving my boyfriend a blowjob. And I was like, OK, cool. Great, great, great. It's going to be a great episode. You yeah. Know? And then when she played the tape, she didn't even have the blowjob in the in the tape. Like, right. It was just all the little things they said to each other. And, like, the quality of their voices because they were lying down. Right. And they were, like, in that zone of, like, kind of high on how attracted they were to each other. Yeah. Like, the, the sweet nothings, for lack of a better term. Um, like, the, the, the volume of the voice mm. and, like, the tiny, like, and the laughing. And, like, and I guess breathing, breath. 
breath is the biggest thing. I mean, like I think Sharon Mashihi, another collaborator of mine, she was like, the breath is the thing. And like, you know, it is like when you hear someone's breath trembling, mm-hmm. like that signifies so much. Like it's so, you know, and sometimes like the sound of a hand, like, you know, this you can hear. Just to clarify, you're, yeah, you're touching, I'm touching your my forearm. Arm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that like the, the sound of two bodies, like kind of like, you know, it's not that sexy. It just sounds like paper. It, there's a certain group of us that really see audio storytelling as a three-dimensional production, mm-hmm. you know, like where you're using every single part of the soundstage. They call it the theater of the mind, you yeah. know, and so you're using the whole theater. You're not just doing a 2D thing. Like you have like multiple layers. You have fo- foreground, you have background, you have midground. You bring people from the background to the foreground and mm-hmm. then back again. And like it's like a Broadway production. Yeah. Instead of like a one woman show with a spotlight. What that makes me think of is those moments where, for example, in the shadows, um, the it's sort of about a relationship that sort of begins and ends and through the course of it. And um is that a spoiler? No, <laughs> no, no. Um, and through part of it, you sort of hear her, even when the woman is, Caitlin is speaking or she's telling what she thinks, there's like little moments of her thoughts, like fleeting thoughts, and they kind of come in in the background. It goes back and forth. Waking up with the breakup fantasy. I'm leaving you. No! Going to bed with the old age together fantasy. Do you think we'll have enough money to put our second kid through school? I don't know. I hope so. I don't say a word about these thoughts to anyone. Sometimes I wonder if that's what long-term monogamous relationships are built on. Not letting yourself think certain things. Not letting certain words about your partner escape your mouth. Knowing that by thinking it or saying it, that it's the beginning of feeling it and acting on it. Whoa, 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 what's up? As an artist, you're always thinking about the experience that the person's having. Like, I I remember taking classes in university about, like, art spaces, museums. Like, how do you kind of, like, control the way people will move through the space? And how do you, like, create the art so that when they inevitably look at the left wall, because that's how all the people who are moving through the space, like, that's what they're going to do. Right. What are you going to put there, you know? And there's something really interesting about designing art just for the experience of a person walking down the street with their headphones on and really thinking about that, being able to make work that is like the setting is the mind. That's just so cool, Mm. you know? Ira Glass has built a brand around this American life that's sort of a sound. Mm -hmm. And Jad Abramrod has built a sound around Radiolab. Do you have words to define what yours yours is, whether it's a sound yeah. or, a, or a Caitlin Prest vibe? Vibe. Um, you might hate that question. Uh, okay I don't. Do. I love. Yeah. That's the thing is like there's these two parts of myself: my pure, super critical of power structures, activist, diehard self. Yeah. And there's the egomaniac, capitalist bitch self. You know, <laughs> that's why it's Mermaid Palace, because it's like there's there's these two parts of of every person. You know, like. So, which is which? I think the, mer- the the fin is the altruistic, okay, and the human is the is the capitalist ego, ego. creep. But um, answering your question, I call it romantic realism, like the way that like the romantic movement is like very lush and very like you know big swirls and deep reds. And I mean, I think about like Baz Luhrmann, Moulin Rouge, yeah. um, plus like a really like raw, dirty super realist like sound where people are being most themselves people are being their most flawed people Mm -hmm. are being their most weak people are being their most ugly 
And and it's just completely it's really natural and true to life and like um, very documentary, very realist, you know. So it's, it's like not the you that you are when there's a microphone in front of you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Romantic realism, I think, is how I've I've started to talk about it. Yeah. And in a way, the fiction work sounds just like the documentary work because mm-hmm. it is a documentary. But it's instead creating a fictional world where we can tell these truths with the license that we need to take, because with the documentary the truth always gets in the way, like the reality of how things happen, when they happen, also the ethics of it all. Okay, so No is this miniseries, right, that where you explore consent through some of your own sexual encounters and your sexual history. As you play this tape that you had found, Mm -hmm. the listener starts to hear the way in which you say no or you set boundaries and the way can be perceived as sort of flirtatious or inviting inviting totally. or sort of like you kind of or a game and it's a very complicated thing to listen to it complicates in, in an important way what consent means and and so I feel like you kind of needed to do that with documentary right like I don't know if that would have been able to happen with fiction I know like originally I thought I wanted to do fiction because I wanted to tell the story from both points of view. Mm-hmm. Right. And but in the, in the series you'll hear that I say almost every woman I and queer I know has a story about having sex they didn't want. Yeah. Like what does this mean about like my cis straight friends, you know? Does it mean that they all have a story about pushing someone into doing something they didn't want to do? And so I started just testing my hypothesis and interviewing everyone I knew. And I thought, oh, I have to interview Jay because, like, we actually, we that happened together. I want to get his point of view. Right. And then the tape, I mean, when we did the interview, like, he just couldn't, he couldn't really get past the fact that we were even talking about it. After I did know, Mm -hmm. I just... I was like, I think I'm done. I'm done with documentary. Like, no matter how much of a jerk my friend was in that interview, it's still a tiny sliver of his person that got shown in that story. That sliver of him being crappy was then used to make a larger point about an issue that millions of people listen to. And I just couldn't, I I don't know, after that, I was just like fiction for life, you know? Like, I'll take my experiences and merge them and warp them and recreate and make new you know, universes to kind of retell these things that feel true to me. And honestly, in that conversation, you don't really hear it in the episode, but it was the first time I told him how I really felt about that night. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even land it, you know? Like, I, what I really felt was, like, I said I don't want to do sex stuff, and you kept trying to undo my pants. Right. And then you put my hand on your dick, and then I took it off, and then you put it back on. And then I took it off. And then I said, go jerk off in the bathroom if this is going to be an issue. And you made fun of me. And I'm feeling trapped and scared. And like, and and I'm going locking into my defense behavior and being like, okay, well, the only way to get through this moment that could get ugly is to make sure this guy has an orgasm, you know? And that feeling feels like shit. Like, I didn't say it like that. But but that's part of the problem too, right? It's so hard to say. I mean, it makes me, when you say it to me right here, it makes me feel emotional. I mean, I I did hear a little bit of that in the conversation that you had. You were kind of trying Trying. to get there, but also still wanting to not insult him or not hurt him or something. And that's like part of it. It's the same thing. It was like the same thing again. Like I spent the whole conversation trying to make sure that I wasn't like upsetting him by delivering the information that I felt. I can't even say it still. Like I can't say I felt that was 
you know, I don't know what to say. I'm just like, I didn't like it. It sucked. Because it's hard. I mean, it's hard with when you're talking about this stuff, you know, like assault, like that word rape, that word, like those words in many ways, like that. And that's what I say in the series. Like we need to have a spectrum of language to talk about these different types of transgressions, you know, and like this kind of psychological violence that he did because he didn't physically force me to do anything, but I psychologically felt Mm -hmm. forced. And so, you know, let's measure physical violence versus psychological violence. Like what, how does it measure up? Like, all that stuff is thing. Are, there, those are things we're still working out. Like, but yeah. I would never want to like claim the same. Um, but Severity. actually, yeah, I don't want to take anything away from people, from women who've had like traumatizing experiences that actually are going to like totally curtail their ability to move through the world. I worked on another series called Silent Evidence about um, the story of a of a of a girl who was molested by her gymnastics coach. And she said to me, it doesn't help anyone to raise the bar for what warrants speaking out. Right. And I just always think about that. Yeah. Like, just because it's not as bad as doesn't mean it wasn't bad. Doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't say don't do that. Right. (laughs) You know. When No came out, it was spring or summer of 2017. And it was before the Weinstein allegations came out in October. And I know you're in talks now about turning it into a TV series. I'm curious where you feel the conversation is now compared to when you were making it. I don't know. When people talk to me about it, they still say when they listen to it, I've never seen it explained this way. Like even now, after all this time, like Mm -hmm. I've never really seen it sort of broken down, like about power, like figuring out how to really tell the story of power and how a power dynamic silences you. And sometimes how a power dynamic does more than silence you. It makes you say yes to things that are bad for you. Like, it makes you negate your own comfort. That's the thing is, like, it's not the story of, like, sexual consent. It's a story of power dynamics. Like, it's a story of telling the truth about what's really happening there and using sex as, like, a case study. One criticism of your work is that it's um, very much about you. Self-indulgent. Self-indulgent. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and um I guess I'm curious how you feel about it as a criticism. We had Ben Lerner on the podcast, the the writer, and he writes what he calls autofiction, which is about his life. And he said that actually he feels that it's not self-indulgent or, or self-centered to write about myself because I know my experience much better than anyone else's. Who am I to assume that I know someone else's experience? Even Like that seems actually more entitled than what I'm doing. Totally. Um, and I guess I was curious about how you feel about it. I feel, I feel the same way. Like, to me, like, it's not because I want to be the star of the show. It's that I don't, I don't want to put anyone else in the position that I'm putting myself in. Um, it's not about me. It's about a bigger issue. Yeah. That's what I always say to the people I'm, like, helping to make stuff. This isn't really about you or what really happened at the end of the day. This is about, like, a bigger question, mm-hmm. you know. And, like, the, that bigger question has to be what people are grappling with as they listen through your story. Mm-hmm. And, like, and so that's why, you know, like, I'm making a memoir, but it's about feminism versus capitalism, you know. Like, it's about social currency. White women are basically the new white men. And, like, what are they going to do about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um People can say that. I, that's fine if they want to say that. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but I, I wonder who the, who are those people. It just feels unfeminist to me. Like, I'm yeah. just like, do you think Ira Glass is self-indulgent? Do you think Alex Bloomberg is self-indulgent? Do you think Jonathan Goldstein is self-indulgent? Do you think Jad Apamrod is self-indulgent? 
I mean, but I also, I know that I can, I mean, I can tell becoming more successful equals having a bit of an ego boost. A year ago, like your kind of imposter syndrome self is like, you're stupid, you know, like cut that part out. It's disgusting, you know, but like right. as you get more recognition, you're like, well, I'm just going to keep that part in. You know, even me included with this podcast, in order for it to succeed, we have to become better known, right? And there's sort of that conflict there of we're not supposed to want that. Like, no, no, I don't want that. But also, I have to want that in Mm -hmm. order for this show to work. So I don't know. It feels sort of like a should we should we have to not want that? I know. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And I think what I like, I like what Ben Lerner said. Because that's kind of how I feel, too. Like, it's like, I know when I'm lying. Yeah. And I'm willing to admit it. I guess I want to hear about Asking For It. Maybe you should tell us what it's about. So Asking For It is the seven-episode fiction series. I worked with a filmmaker and musician named Drew Denny to produce for the last year. It's coming out with CBC Podcasts February 25th. We've been calling it a queer contemporary take on the Goldilocks tale. Like, it's a love story, Mm -hmm. and it's about the cycle of abuse, looking at one woman's journey to break that cycle. Here's a part of the trailer. I have found the person who perfectly fills all my notches and grooves and potholes. The person who makes me whole. Take a picture of yourself in your room and send it to me so I know you're alone. But what if I'm misshapen? What if I'm a puzzle piece forged in such a dysfunctional factory that when I meet my perfect match, it's a disaster? All I want is somebody to hold me who doesn't want anything from me. Dangerous, even. (laughs) Everyone asks themselves at some point, how did I get here? How did I get here? And how am I going to escape? How am I going to escape? How did I get here? I fell in love. Asking for it. From CBC Podcasts and Mermaid Palace. When you say Goldilocks, when I first heard that before I started listening, I had no idea what that could mean. And then I realized that really it felt to me like a story of a young woman who had gone through a difficult childhood looking for the right kind of love, Mm -hmm. you know, too hot, too cold, just enough, too big, too small, just enough, sort of that 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 was the journey of the show. Totally. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, so that was Drew's original pitch to me. That was the one liner that I was like, oh, my God, I want like we got to make this a podcast. That's the balance that I try to strike in my work. I'm trying to make something that is as entertaining as Batman that's representing extremely important issues and, like, naturalizing them because yeah. intimacy, violence, assault, these things are way more pervasive than people admit. The audio world, podcasting, radio, mm-hmm. whatever, sort of that industry mm-hmm. is exploding. Next year, it's projected to achieve a billion dollars in ad revenue. Podcasts are becoming television shows. You're doing the thing. You're succeeding in this world, but you're succeeding with something very different. And what does that feel like? Yeah. I mean, I think on some level, like at the beginning, it was a feeling. It was like that punk feeling of being like, okay, like this is main, this is the mainstream culture and we're outside of it and we're mad. It, it's complicated, of course, because like once you once you enter mainstream culture, are you reproducing the same problems that, you know, that you were critiquing when you were outside of it? Right. Um, what does it mean to actually, like, go from, ha- like, from having no power to having lots? 
um, or some, you know, <laughs> like, you know, what's that that thing? But I mean, yeah. at the beginning, being on the outside of it all, it was it was about our politics. You know, it was like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, like public radio was the only way that you could have a job making audio documentary or audio narrative. Yeah. And in the public radio world, you know, you couldn't have a politic, you mm. know, I'm not a feminist. I'm a woman making art. I mean, I am a feminist. Let's be real. <laughs> but I'm not like trying to push my agenda on you. Like I am just trying to take up space and like make work from my point of view. Right. And like to support these other women make work from their point of view. And like and that was branded as political. It was right. branded as having as being activist. And so there's no space in a, in a public radio. Yeah, because for it's that, journalism, because it's objective, right. blah. But it's like, yeah. oh, but objective means like what is naturalized by the dominant culture. Yeah. Right. So that's what it felt like then. And it was like very kind of righteous, ragely mad about being on the outside. But then culture started to shift. Mm. And by the third year of the heart, Third Coast, the Oscars of radio, you know, we swept the awards. It went from being all of the white man shows winning every single year mm -hmm. um, to I remember that I'll never forget that year. Like we won a quarter of the awards. Wow. And it wasn't just us winning a quarter of the awards like everyone else on that stage were like people of color and queers and women. Right. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, it happened. And I'd almost started to give up that it was going to happen, that things were going to change. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to all my things, all my thoughts, all my feelings. <laughs> I appreciate it. Lala, you know, I think one of the great things about doing this podcast is that you introduced me to things that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. I just don't know if I would have come across Caitlin Prest if you hadn't said to me, you have to listen to this. And I would really recommend people doing that if you haven't heard it already. Um, it is really amazing. Um, mm. And then hearing from her and hearing about the way that she made it was just fascinating. But before I ask you about that, what was she like? What was, I mean, she's quite a personality. There are different types of interviewees, right? There's the type who you can tell is figuring out what they're saying in their head before they speak. Yeah. Or who feel careful. Maybe they've been burned before or they have to sort of uh, self-censor. They're kind of guarded. They're guarded, yeah. yeah. She came into the newsroom. She came into the studio and she just, you know, opened up. I interviewed also Alex Katz, the 93-year-old painter, last year. And um, he was the same. He just was like, ask me anything. I like this because it makes me think about things in new wow. ways and makes me mm. think about my life in ways that I didn't before. And so just, uh, you know, go ahead. And he answered really honestly. And Caitlin was the same. But it's very refreshing. It's very refreshing. It's a really great type of interview to, to have. I think it's quite brave to be open. It is. It's probably liberating, I would imagine. Yeah. You know what I also really liked about the interview it was the way that she described her craft. Mm. She was quite technical about it. And obviously she is like highly accomplished and it's, she's really an artist in what she does. But it wasn't so technical that I felt like I was being left behind. Like I think I have very, very short patience for people being really nerdy about technical stuff. I find it like a bit of yeah. a turn off. But actually when she was talking about 3D sound and about the foreground and the background and it being a bit like a Broadway musical, I loved that. It was such an interesting way to describe sound physically also just hearing these little tricks of the trade um <laughs> actual sex does not sound erotic yeah or like the importance of breath mm -hmm. to convey 
humanness. Since listening to your interview, I've gone and listened to the series No, and and the way that she starts the heart with that kind of heartbeat and that breath, mm-hmm. and the way that you feel like she's, I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about technically, but she's like right there in your ear. It's so um, intimate. There's something that feels quite special about that to me. Yeah, it's not a way that you get talked to very often, except mm. by people who you're maybe in bed next to. I mean, it's <laughs> so intimate. Yeah. And one of the things that I think struck me about this series, No, was like you said in the interview that it came out and presumably was made months and even years before the main wave of hashtag Me Too and after the Harvey Weinstein allegations. I know. Um, and it kind of goes right back. I mean, this is such an old problem, isn't it? Consent. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about it now with this kind of hashtag. But actually, you know, the first episode when she's talking about her teenage experiences, that just... I mean, it really reminded me of what it was like to be a teenage girl and that kind of, like, real entitlement, I think, that a lot of teenage boys had to sex yeah, or to anything, like, sexy. It was like their desire was the most important thing and you were just there to kind of facilitate that in some way. Mm. We haven't talked about No Grizz since you listened to it. What did you, what stuck with you? So something that seems like it's quite a theme in the series for Caitlin is the idea that girls are taught from a very young age to please people and to be Mm -hmm. pleasant and and to accommodate and not to make people feel bad about what they've said or what they've done, Mm -hmm. um, to basically be nice, but in like quite a deep way to be nice. Yeah. And I don't think I'd really made the link before between consent and between that very ingrained people pleasing so that you know one of the things she's exploring is she is saying no this is Caitlin but she's saying no in this way that's very people pleasing Mm -hmm. and that's leading to this kind of gray area saying no as a woman is quite a difficult thing yeah and saying no can often be misperceived as saying yes yeah even to us as listeners. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it, systemic. Completely. It really yeah. made me think about the word no and about what that, like how you say it, what it means, what consent is. Mm-hmm. And like partly I'm like, oh, this whole debate is so annoying. No is no. It should be really clear. And men or whoever who misunderstand it are just being like willfully, like, is it really that hard, basically? Right. You know, no, just, just stop what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But then... There is a gray area and her series yeah. her series really shows that. So I still feel quite, I mean, as you can hear, I still feel quite torn about it. Yeah, what I liked about the show also is that it didn't end with some cut and dry message about what needs to happen next. I mean, other than the fact that there is not a lot of good language to deal with the gray area. And part of the reason that it still feels relevant is because Me Too didn't really solve that gray area stuff. It just exposed more examples of it. Yeah, Um, I'm thinking of the story around Aziz Ansari. He went on a date with someone who went public afterwards anonymously to say that she felt sort of coerced by him and gave details. Um, But the details created a whole debate about whose fault it was. And it was much more of a gray area uh, example of Me Too than all the other ones that were that were out there. And it also reminds me of The Success of Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian, the New Yorker short story that was also sort of about that gray area. Grizz, I know you spoke with her for the podcast. Yeah, that was um, last year. She was, she's a, she was a great interviewee. We'll put that one in the show notes as well. 
And so this was so needed. And I'm excited for the TV show. The one other thing Caitlin mentioned in our conversation that I thought was interesting was the broader message about how these questions about consent are also just about power. All the ways in which women are taught to accommodate don't just happen sexually, but happen in the workplace and happen in friendships and happen on the street. Um, and they're all ultimately power struggles. Mm. I feel like you could just record any meeting and you can hear <laughs> it, basically. I mean, yeah. Or compare, you know, interviews. Mm. You know, one other thing that I thought was um, interesting about your conversation with Caitlin was about this idea of truth and documentary. And I think she used this phrase at one point, truth getting in the way. Yeah. Like how truth and really getting to like the truth of a story are not always the same thing. Right. But I wonder like, so I've only listened to No, um, and you've listened to much more of her output, including the fiction um, audio series that she makes. Are they, do they feel quite different? Do you think like one's better than the other? I don't think either are better or worse, but it is, it does feel, it does sound sort of freeing. It still sounds like her. There's a fiction six-part series called The Shadows that she came out with last year, and it's excellent. And it sort of tracks a relationship from the start to the end, from when they sort of meet and begin flirting through the course of the relationship until mm -hmm. um, they break up. And um, she says that it's sort of autobiographical, but the freeing nature is that sort of where it serves the story. So she doesn't have to stick rigidly to like what actually happened, who right. said what. Right, and you can script it. It reminds me of this thing that my writing professor in college used to say, Blanche Boyd. I was in a fiction class with her. I had been in nonfiction, and I wrote this piece that was sort of based on my family, and she said, it doesn't feel true. And I said, but it all happened. I just made it fiction. Like, it is true. Mm. And she's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter if it's true. It has to feel true. Like, for fiction, it has to feel true. That's so um, interesting. And that matters so much more than in documentary or in nonfiction writing, where, like, you are sort of, you're bounded by the facts being accurate. Yeah, I mean, that's like the kind of ethical imperative of journalism, right? It has to be true. The facts are checked. Everything's verified. So I, I like it. And the new series Asking For It kind of pushes it even further. Okay, so if you're a designer, a journalist, a buyer for a high street brand, or maybe you just like clothes, uh, you'll know that February is fashion month. <laughs> um, that's basically just shorthand for the fashion weeks that happen one after the other in New York, London, Milan and Paris. That's probably the wrong order. Yes. So I follow Financial Times Fashion, the Instagram account from the fashion desk who sit right near you, Grizz, I think. Yeah, it's a great account. It's a great account. And um, during Fashion Month, the stories are just full of runways. And so you sort of watch all these beautiful women walking down the runways with all these crazy clothes on and you think, wow, this is fun, but I have no idea what I'm watching or why it matters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we wanted to do something a bit different to help us make sense of it. Right. And Emily Siegel seemed like the perfect person to do this for us. She is responding to fashion in a completely different way. She's responding as a cultural researcher and writer and brand consultant and sort of officially a trend forecaster. So a number of years ago, Emily came up with the term normcore, which you probably have heard. Uh, it wasn't supposed to describe a look. It was sort of about adaptability and being able to go into different communities. And it was this reaction to alternative hipster culture. It suggested that people were sort of maxed out on having to prove their differentness. 
But then it went viral and it took on a different meaning, which described a new sort of hipster outfit that was a reaction to what came before. So it was like Seinfeld, um, <laughs> 90s middle America. It was dad jeans with dirty New Balance sneakers and mm. an old Patagonia zip up, you know, the new uncool cool. So we can thank Emily Siegel for that language. And here are her top five alternative takeaways to Fashion Month. One. Fashion Week is not where the trends of fashion are set and disseminated. Do you remember in the Devil Wears Prada where there's that scene about the cerulean sweater? The character played by Anne Hathaway, who's supposedly too smart to work at Vogue. She's wearing this frumpy blue sweater. And she gets this very withering speech from Meryl Streep saying that the cerulean blue of her sweater was actually trickled down from an Oscar de Laurenta show where that color was very carefully selected. And the lives of regular people are being affected in unseen ways by these high-level backroom decisions made by fashion operatives. And that's a very glamorous and in certain ways seductive view of how it all works. But if the idea that there is a trickle down of a particular look or style from something that happens in Paris or Milan or wherever it might be is antiquated. Two. Fashion Week is really important for the fashion industry in the same way that conventions can be. But I think it's more important in a B2B way than for the general public. Now, it might influence something and it might influence store merchandising or the way that certain big retailers purchase their stock. There's so many places to get inspired that the runways are really only one sample. The role of Fashion Week becomes part of the experience economy widely construed. So the experience economy was a term coined in the late 90s by economists talking about how the things that people wanted to pay the most for were no longer commodities or services, but experiences. And because it was the late 90s, they would talk about how moms weren't going and buying Betty Crocker cake mix. They were taking their kids to Chuck E. Cheese's. That might seem a far cry from Fashion Week, but what we've seen is a scenario in which the most prestigious consumption happens at countless fashion weeks, art biennales, certain music festivals, and things like Burning Man, which are an amalgamation of different forms of consumption and media all at once. Rich and influential people, they could basically spend the entire year just going to fashion week after biennale, after conference, after festival. Three, you can't overestimate how important Instagram has become. These platforms, along with the rise and explosion of fast fashion as an industry, created a situation where the way that clothes, fashion, garments, accessories, etc. appear in a picture is so much more important than their physical reality. Many luxury logos are actually being redesigned, stripped down into simpler, more sans serif fonts so that they can show up even more easily. Celine was one. Dior has been redesigned in an interesting sort of cyber way. And it's less about continuing a heritage legacy, which is what luxury used to be about for. It was reported in 2018 that H&M had $4.3 billion worth of merchandise it needed to destroy because it couldn't sell it. And I think that was a turning point in people's estimation of fast fashion. The 2003 Harvard Business Review case study on Zara is really interesting because it tracks 
the way that seasonal cycles of production changed with different fashion labels. So it used to be three or four seasons a year. Then in the 80s, there started to be more cycles of production mapped onto newer sort of fake seasons. I think Anne Klein did six, Donna Karen did eight. And then when you get to something like Zara, they're basically designing on demand and having clothes come into the store days or weeks after an image is created by the design team. So that becomes maybe 200 fashion cycles per year in terms of production. It's almost endless. I think that people know that it's bad for the environment to overproduce, to produce out of toxic, harmful materials. Often the labor practices associated with these stores are really poor and people are becoming more conscious of that. And then I think also the excitement over having a gazillion clothes. I think people get sick of only liking what they have for a really short period or having things fall apart. I think there's a turn toward trying to dress differently. With the rise of streetwear, you have much smaller runs of things that are print on demand or limited editions where you don't even know if it was ever produced. So it's almost this asymptote where it goes into a mythical or invisible place up from three or four cycles to hundreds of cycles up to we don't even know if there's a cycle. Five. I read an article recently in Cosmopolitan asking, are trends themselves over? So if that conversation is happening in an outlet as mainstream as Cosmo, you know that there's a larger critical attitude or a sense of exhaustion coming from a lot of regular girls. The democratization of fashion is something that people have talked about for a long time. And there still are CEOs and designers and creative directors making some decisions but nobody's making decisions for you. There are more options than ever, and in a perfect world, that will lead to more creativity than ever. So I encourage people to think outside the box and realize that there may be no real definition of good style anymore, which can be freeing. That's it for this week. One thing before we go, there's a new platform launching as part of FT Weekend and it's called Globetrotter. It's great. It's basically these insider city guides for London, New York, Paris, Frankfurt, Hong Kong and Tokyo. It's just launched and you can read everything for free up until the 26th of February. So all of those city guides are at ft.com slash globetrotter. So uh, thanks, everybody. We love hearing from you, as you know. You can find us on Twitter at FT Culture Call. You can find us on Instagram at Griselda MB and at Lila Rapp. Uh, or you can email the show anytime at culturecall at FT.com. That goes directly to Grizz and me. You know that we especially love to hear what you're reading, listening to, watching. Um, so let us know and we may put your recommendation on the show. And if you like what you hear, the very best way that you can support the show is to share it with friends that you think may enjoy it. You can also help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. We'll both be back in two weeks' time. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Presswood. And our music is composed by Fatum. I'm going to let you finish, but uh, Caitlin Press had the best documentary of 2017. Okay. <laughs> Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.